At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome back to the Gillette Health Podcast, where we give you tools to develop a balanced approach for health. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner, and we're covering a topic that a lot of people have asked questions about. Today's topic is CGMs, or continuous glucose monitors. So a good place to start is, what is a continuous glucose monitor? Yeah, so this is like a Freestyle Libre or a Dexcom. And a continuous glucose monitor usually measures interstitial glucose, not necessarily blood glucose. But initially, they were developed as a way to help diabetics know when their blood sugar is going up. It's awfully convenient not to have to do a finger stick. And it's also convenient, I guess, not to have to get CMPs drawn throughout the day. So um, they are extremely useful in some situations. There is kind of a little bit of a dichotomy or I guess a controversy within CGMs because some people think that everybody should have a CGM. When you're born, I guess you just have one implanted in you permanently. Um, and then some people think that um, they are not useful whatsoever unless you are a diabetic. As, and in some cases, unless you're a diabetic on insulin. There is certainly a lot of nuance in between. So we'll explain some of that today. Um, one important thing about CGMs is accuracy. Yeah. So when you're looking at the accuracy between the two newest generations of the Libre and the, free, uh, the Freestyle Libre and then the Dexcom, the Libre 3 has a slight edge. They're both right around 8% and really it's not going to be clinically significantly different. But um, the Dexcom does have the ability to calibrate to a finger stick glucometer, potentially improving the accuracy or if you happen to have one of the worst performing glucometers, you could actually decrease the accuracy of your Dexcom. This is something mm -hmm. that I wasn't yeah. aware of until we were researching for this podcast. So you tend to think of like finger stick being the gold standard. It's mm -hmm. what they use in hospitals. It's what they use in critical care because you're measuring the blood glucose directly. You're not measuring interstitial glucose. So you're going to see a little bit of a lag when you're using a CGM. But if you're looking at the differences between the finger stick glucometers that are commercially available, they can have what's called the mean absolute relative difference anywhere from about five and a half percent all the way to 20 percent. So if you're taking your Dexcom and let's say it's has an 8% mean absolute relative difference and you're calibrating it to a finger stick glucometer with a 20% mean absolute relative difference, you may be making its performance worse rather than better. So that $15 glucometer that I got from eBay is probably not good to calibrate to my Dexcom. What, what is good to calibrate to your Dexcom? Probably the ones that score better, one that has a 5.6% uh, mean absolute relative difference. And um, we can actually put a link to that in the yep. description. We'll put a list so you can uh, see if you already have a glucometer. And um, we'll also put a link to one of the ones that we generally recommend. We have no affiliation with the company as disclosure. Um, I guess uh, when you're choosing a glucometer, things like cost can also 
um, be an issue. And also when you're choosing a CGM, cost is an issue. Um, for someone who's not diabetic, uh, how would you help choose that? Yeah, it depends on you know, like what a person's resources are. So if someone has like no activities that would prevent them from using a CGM and they have unlimited resources, then for that person, it might make sense to use a CGM year round. I think for most people, even two weeks, but definitely a month is enough time to kind of get a nice feedback loop of, hey, like, is what you're doing actually working for you in terms of like just making sure that you don't have a meal with you know, 50 grams of carbs, assuming it's a balanced meal and your glucose spikes up to 180, even though your A1C is 5.2 or in the non-diabetic range. So I think it can be useful. It can provide some insight. You know, you can see what happens when you are sleep deprived. You can see what happens with stress levels. You can see like what time of day you tolerate more carbohydrates better. I mean, this could be useful for athletes who you know, need a higher carbohydrate load, you know, endurance athletes come to mind, they, they probably tolerate carbohydrates quite well. Um, and one thing you should not worry about if you're using it is the, the spikes during exercise, because even though, you know, there's sort of this messaging that all glucose spikes are harmful, that's certainly not the case. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail, but the reason we brought up the glucometer is the importance of confirming abnormal results. Yeah. Especially the first couple of days, you're going to see some abnormal readings, some lows that are not necessarily true, some highs that are not necessarily true. So you always would do want to fall back to a finger stick glucometer and, and confirm that you are indeed having lows or highs, um, or just for getting a sense of what the accuracy looks like. So I guess if people are using one of these, they want to see like, okay, what is a healthy range? What should my numbers be? Pretty straightforward for diabetes. The, the studies now they're using, you know, time and range or TIR are a range between 70 and 180. So someone's not hypoglycemic and they're not profoundly hyperglycemic. What about for someone who's just using this to optimize their health? If it's someone who's particularly insulin sensitive, it might be reasonable to uh, use a number below 70, for example, 60. Some individuals recommend uh, only up to 140, and anything over 140 is concerning. But uh, depending on what you eat and what your habits are, and also just uh, how the CGM interacts with you, up to 160 might be reasonable. And for some people, even up to 180. If you tend to consume a lot of liquid calories, then you might have slightly more spikes. But if you do that right before you exercise and you're going to utilize that glucose in a nutrient partitioning effect, then is that really the problem or is that the therapy itself? Right. And the way I see it is if you have a brief spike up to, let's call it 180, and then it comes down rather quickly, that's not as concerning as someone who eats a meal and then you spike up to 180 and you're remaining there or remaining above 150 for several hours after that meal. Mm -hmm. To me, the way you interpret the data is more important than this person had X number of spikes above 180. It kind of goes back to that time in range thing. So if you're up above 180 for a couple of minutes and then your body kicks in and you're producing plenty of insulin, you know, putting that glucose in the muscles where you're gonna use it, yep. to me, I don't think that that's extraordinarily harmful. Agreed. And I'm, that being said, that doesn't mean that power lifters and CrossFitters <laughs> should look at their metabolic health when they're eating a bag of Sour Patch Kids every day. Yeah, the type of simple carbohydrate I think matters. There's a decent example of this when you look at 
I think they gave people like just a glucose solution and then gave them orange juice. So these are people with established coronary artery disease mm -hmm. and the solution of glucose. And I think even like heavy cream um, induced angina in a number of these patients, but the mm -hmm. orange juice did not. So to me, it's like, you know, a bag of Sour Patch Kids versus, you know, a serving or two servings of berries or some other very like a mango, very high sugar content in both of those foods. But one of those is going to have other beneficial phytochemicals that sets off the, or like, you know, offsets the deleterious effects of the elevated glucose. Whereas Sour Patch Kids, I don't know that there's any beneficial chemicals in there. I'm sure there's chemicals. <laughs> Some red number 40 to get you well stimulated for your power lift. So um, anyway, uh, there is also a discussion about if CGM should be over the counter at some point, I think there is a 100% chance that they'll be over the counter, but they're essentially over the counter right now because within uh, probably 60 seconds, you can go, you can search CGM and you can go and buy one. You don't have to see a doctor, but as we mentioned earlier, if you have an abnormal result, for example, it's very common to see results in the fifties or even forties at nighttime, um, your first couple nights. That's probably something that you should talk to a doctor about. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure what it looks like after someone has obtained a CGM through one of these companies. But, you know, one of the concerns is that, you know, we're not going to name any of these companies by name, but they could certainly take eating disorders to another level. So I went through the process, like a, a mock process of getting a CGM from one of these companies. And uh, at no point did it ask me if I had a history of eating disorders. So I hope someone at one of these companies watches this and decides like, hey, we should add this to screen people out. Um, but it asked me if I had diabetes, if I used insulin, if I was in jail, interestingly. Yeah. Um, and if I was allergic to adhesive, um, <coughs> which is really the biggest true danger of the CGM yeah. for the most people is like, you know, hypersensitivity reaction, just like any medication or yeah. thing you apply to yourself itching, sensitivity, pain at the site you're using it. So those are things that are real. Um, but what does Harvard think is concerning about CGMs? Yeah, um, Harvard is more in the camp, we mentioned the two camps previously, that if you um, are not a diabetic, that CGMs have a lot of harm. They also stated, if biologically insignificant drops in your blood sugar lead you to snack more to avoid hypoglycemia, you could gain weight and increase your risk of developing diabetes. Um, I, I don't think that that claim is very substantiated. I would love in to fact, see. In fact, contrary to that, I think it's the opposite. Yeah, I think it would be much more likely to induce a like orthorexia, disordered eating of some yeah. sort, than it would be to cause people to eat more to keep their blood sugar up. Mm -hmm. um, I would love to see a paper published, The Diabetogenic Effect of CGM. I don't yeah. think that will ever happen. Yeah, I'll, I see CGM is kind of similar to scales. Um, maybe we need to do an episode, CGM, will it blend or smash CGMs and scales with a sledgehammer for patients that have um, severe cases of anorexia. Our colleague Amanda, one of the other nurse practitioners at Gillette Health, was telling us about a case earlier of a patient that was interested in a CGM, but had been admitted before for anorexia and um, would have been extremely concerned with even a blood glucose over 120. So yes, in some cases, counseling can help with that, but 
it is certainly possible that in some cases, like disordered eating, that it does more harm than good, just like weighing yourself four times a day often does more harm than good in someone that's orthorexic. Yeah, I think that's a really good analogy. And it, it goes back to what do you do with that? What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up zero to one grams of net carbs, five to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. So one of the recommendations or blog posts put out by a company that sells these things, uh, these are the 10 surprising foods that are spiking your glucose. And presumably they're putting this information out there because people should be worried about these foods. So the first one here is orange juice. And I, I spoke a bit about orange juice and there are antioxidants in there. You are better off probably eating the whole orange versus yep. drinking the orange juice generally. But, you know, an athlete you know, carving up, filling up with some quick, quickly absorbing sugars and orange juice versus a diabetic, having a glass of orange juice at breakfast, yep. two very different scenarios. Agreed. Um, the main downside of orange juice is a relatively calorically dense food that you can consume very quickly that often does not have a lot of fiber in it. Of course, some orange juices have more or less fiber, but that it's still a minimally processed food. So uh, on a list like this, I would hope to see a lot of ultra processed foods. Let's see if that is the case as we keep going down. Yeah, like oatmeal. So it's interesting that they say off the bat that oatmeal is associated with reduced heart attack risk and weight loss. There's a lot of supporting data for oatmeal and I think it's because most people are getting not very much fiber, you know, 10, maybe 15 grams per day. So it's interesting to see oatmeal kind of demonized here because, you know, it spikes glucose. Now, there is a difference between um, a packet of oatmeal that has 20 grams of sugar in it and yep. like whole oats that you are like presumably cooking longer versus instant oats. Yep. But in general, like, People aren't fooled when they see a box of oatmeal that is cinnamon sugar flavored with 20 grams of sugar in a packet thinking, oh, this is going to reduce my chance of heart disease. People yep. are not being tricked by that, just like they're not tricked by Pop-Tarts having a label that says vitamins and minerals on it. No one thinks it's a health food. Yeah. So there's a bit of nuance here, uh, but singling out oatmeal as a whole, I don't think is a great idea. The next one is non-dairy milk. Um, I don't hate this one just because, as people know, one of my favorite diets is the zero liquid calorie diet, and this would consist of liquid calories. Occasionally, we give an exception of a protein shake that has less than a gram of two or fat and a gram or two of carbohydrate, and this is often very high in carbohydrates. Um, that being said, it's not like non-dairy milk is an, an ultra-processed food high in trans fat or very high in sugar. Some of them have much worse macronutrient profiles, like perhaps oat milk, and some are really not too bad. Yeah, so again, it depends on the label and, you know, on myself, I'm gonna pick dairy milk over non-dairy milk. Uh, next up on our list is avocado toast, which is an interesting choice because avocado toast potentially has more fiber in it than the average person gets during their whole day for looking yeah. at the population. 
So I, I suppose they put this in here because it's trendy and it it's will trendy. trigger some people. Yeah, they're trying to get Gen Z to reconsider their diet, <laughs> hipsters. So I like avocado toast a lot. Next is soup. So this is a highly specific recommendation. Um, they talk about how soup is often packed with metabolically friendly vegetables, whatever those are, beans, lean meats, and that's great. And then some canned and restaurant soups have a lot of added sugar. So I think that is a wonderful point. In my opinion, things like soup and things like uh, pasta sauce, tomato sauce, there is just no reason to have added sugar in those things. And there often is. So um, I think that's a great recommendation. Next up, bean and veggie burgers. So I, I think there's a huge difference between a beyond meat burger and a bean burger. Yep. The bean burger is gonna have a lot more fiber, generally going to be a healthy thing. Whereas the you know beyond meat burger, just to, to name one that people are familiar with, tends to actually have, I think I saw a comparison where there's just as much, if not slightly more saturated fat and less protein. So yes, it doesn't contain animal products, but it seems to be an inferior food in just about every regard. I'm sure there's other examples where perhaps there's some that are not as high in saturated fat out there, but uh, off the hand, I think it's odd to put these two in a single comparison. Yeah, I would have titled this high saturated fat plant-based meat replacement. Mm -hmm. I think that would be appropriate. As people know, I do love consuming lots of plant-based foods. I just like to consume it with animal-based foods. Uh, I know that, uh, at times I like to combine, sometimes I eat bean burgers and veggie burgers as well, low in saturated fat, put one patty of that on and then one patty of like your bison from Kansas or um, one of the ground beefs that we get from one of the farmers near here. Not, not, that, it, like, not that you have to do that at all, but um, it can be a good source of protein and nutrients as well. You the can next... also send the burger back at the restaurant and say, I wanted one of these patties to be a bean burger. <laughs> Keep all three and then you have a triple burger. It's a little life hack. It's a good hack. Uh, <laughs> the next is grapes. So, um, yeah. I, I, screams I, are they trying in, to avoid candy? Screams in resveratrol. Yeah. Um, not that resveratrol, uh, like perhaps it's a bit overhyped. Uh, previously, knew, nobody knew about it. And then I guess David Sinclair mentioned it. And it just got so popular. It's not the only antioxidant out there. But grapes are not evil. Um, they can be high in calories, um, but consuming grapes themselves is going to be better than consuming grape juice. Um, arguably, grape juice would be worse for metabolic health and mm -hmm. spiking your glucose than orange juice just because it has less fiber. Um, but I would have liked to see something like um, uh, some sort of candy on here. Speaking of that, there are some energy bars or health bars that are essentially candy. Like a Snickers. Is Snickers supposed to be an energy bar? You get a little bit of a sugar rush and that gives people energy. Snickers also turn you from your hangry self into your normal self again. But they also so spike your glucose. mood stabilizer. Yeah, but isn't there peanuts in there or something that stabilizes your blood glucose? <laughs> yeah, and when you look at some of the brands, you know, the bars out there that purport to be health foods, 
they look remarkably similar and taste remarkably similar to something like a Snickers or a Butterfingers. So yep. generally the tastiest products, not always, but generally those ones are going to be the least healthy. And if you're picking a protein bar, you are probably going to want to optimize the gram of protein to calorie mm -hmm. ratio. So if something is 20 grams of protein and 200 calories, that's a pretty good yep. like rule of thumb. If it's 20 grams of protein and 400 calories, that's not a great protein source. I have a good formula of how to make a protein crisp. You take a recipe similar to a crunch bar and then you replace whatever the crispy thing in is it with a soy crisp. A lot of these protein bars have six grams of soy crisp that gives it a nice little crunch. And that's not terrible to enjoy from time to time, but it's essentially just a crunch bar with extra soy crisp. And now we have brown rice. So this is interesting. Um, brown rice certainly is less glycemic than white rice. And I suppose if you are consuming brown rice in isolation, you will see a glucose spike just because it is carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. But it's a better choice than white rice generally. And some people don't tolerate brown rice because of the fiber content. Um, but generally, this is part of a mixed meal. Like I think of like brown rice also having black beans in it, you know, usually some protein source like meat. So I can't imagine that, that would be a particularly terrible meal. Although the caveat there is since rice is a very small granule, you do have more surface area yeah. for the carbohydrate to be absorbed. So um, I suppose slowing down when eating rice would be a reasonable recommendation to take away from this. Yeah, uh, this is another way to say rice is not a food of low caloric density. Things like uh, cauliflower or broccoli um, have, or zucchini have lower caloric density. And um, there's a lot of ways that you can say, yes, what matters most for metabolic health is calories in, calories out. Um, so I guess this is a, a reasonable enough recommendation. But at the same time, if uh, this person is quite metabolically healthy, then I wouldn't recommend removing rice and certainly not brown rice from the diet. Yeah. And I would assume that most of the like consumers of these CGMs are metabolically healthy, looking to become further metabolically healthy. I don't think mm -hmm. it's like primarily people with diabetes that are going out and purchasing their own CGMs. Yep. The next one is sweet potatoes. So this kind of reminds me of brown rice. It's like, well, why'd they specifically call out brown rice? Why not just rice? Why sweet potatoes? It's probably because brown rice and sweet potatoes are seen as healthy and they're trying to be a little sensationalist. But uh, yeah, again, sweet potatoes are a food of good nutrient density and they have a pretty solid amount of fiber as well. But uh, they are not a food of low caloric density. Yeah, I feel personally attacked by this one. I, did, I know that my sweet potatoes, they do have a significant amount of sugar in them, but they also have about half that amount of fiber. So it may be 20 grams of sugar, but about mm. 10 grams of fiber, which I think is a pretty good trade-off and they're full of good flavonoids. So I am going to shamelessly defend sweet potatoes because I am owned by Big Sweet Potato. That seems good. Um, For full I, disclosure. I guess one interesting side tangent from that would be the concept of net carbs. So people who go by net carbs often subtract the amount of carbs by the amount of fiber, but it's not like your body will subtract those carbs and say, all right, we're, we're not going to use those carbs. Um, we agree to play, you ate enough fiber, congratulations. 
But at the same time, for health reasons, uh, and maybe net carbs is not the perfect way to think about it, but those who dismiss net carbs are also kind of dismissing fiber in the diet. So yes, the fiber in the diet is extremely important, probably more important than the average person realizes, but at the same time, the concept of net carbs is not entirely correct. Yeah, and so I think the main takeaway in our, our talking points from this is like, I think a shocking number of people don't know how much fiber they're getting per day. And when they look at like reported food intakes, it's exceedingly low. It should probably be about three to four times where it is if we're looking at you know, population health and what's going to move the needle. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great takeaway. Hopefully we've provided some actionable advice. Um, that and also concepts like caloric density and nutrient density and might seem a little bit redundant and might not be as sensationalist as calling out avocado toast and brown rice and sweet potatoes. But uh, hopefully it has given you some tools to develop a balanced approach to, the, to your health and also to balance your blood glucose.